Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. I'll be reading Luke, chapter 16, verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, we need other worldly grace this morning to hear, to believe, and to be empowered in whatever state of life we find ourselves today as young, as old, as middle-aged, as married, as single, as divorced, as divorced and remarried, would you grace us with the power of the gospel by the presence, the person of your Spirit to hold to every jot and tittle of your word. Amen. See what that does. This verse in our journey through the Gospel of Luke has led me to do a short series on the topic of divorce and remarriage. Last week was the introduction to this topic. So let me summarize what I did last week. First was to recognize that this is one of the most sensitive topics in all of Christianity, in the church world. Anytime you deal with divorce, you're dealing with one of the most painful experiences human beings can go through. The anger, the sense of injustice by a spouse, the regret, it goes deep. Secondly, I said that we, we need to at least speak something about what the Bible says about marriage to have a context for what Jesus is saying here. And so we saw last week that marriage is a creation ordinance of God. No matter what human being, what culture they come from, what religion they come from, marriage is ordained by God and recognized by God. He joins two human beings together, one woman and one man, and they become one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, together let not man separate. We saw that this marital covenant ultimately is purposed to point to, to be a parable of Christ and His faithfulness to the church. Third thing we saw last week, that in dealing with this topic, all of us who are believers must feel the tension between the desire to uphold the biblical standard and at the same time 
to do so with a heart that breaks and that is tender and that is loving towards those who have failed the biblical standard and have come to repentance and are moving on in their life. Last week, what I did at the end of the sermon was then to introduce the topic in this sense to show here's the number of differing views within the church world on the topic of divorce and remarriage. And remember, I broke them up into two large categories, those that believe that divorce is never biblically permissible, those that believe that divorce is sometimes, for particular reasons, either one or two reasons, permissible and thus so is remarriage. Now, this week, we go to the biblical text. I'm going to start with the Old Testament. The most significant passage in the Old Testament on the issue of divorce and remarriage is in Deuteronomy. So turn there, please. Chapter 24. Beginning your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible. Chapter 24, starting with verse 1, we read, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of the house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination to the Lord. Okay. This text here in Deuteronomy assumes that people will divorce. It assumes husbands will divorce wives. It doesn't sanction it. It assumes it. It allows it. It tolerates it. But underneath that allowance, in the text, there's this sense and smell and what we read here that it's wrong. And it's a result of sin. See, during this period, during the period of the law, when Moses originally gave this commandment and down through the centuries, the idea of writing her a certificate of divorce was a protection for the woman. Protecting her from slander on why she's being divorced. It declared that the end of her marriage is not caused by her marital infidelity. Now, on what ground was divorce assumed in this text? Look at verse 1. When a man, he didn't say, a man, this is how you're supposed to do it. He just says, when this happens. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then he, excuse me, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Okay, there's the ground that's assumed. What the heck does that mean? Okay. Literally in the Hebrew, the word means something like uh, the nakedness of a thing. 
No, it's, it's actually used in a context where it's appropriate to translate it as excrement. So, here's the bottom line. What, what's the indecency that's assumed here? No one really knows. For sure. What I want to point you to, though, is the word defiled in verse 4. Moses writes, Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination. Strange wording. Remember, he divorced her. Now, where's security going to come from? Remarriage. And she remarries. And in one of the cases, it goes great, and he dies. He says the first man may not take her because she's defiled. Well, how was she defiled? It seems to be because of what we saw last week. Her original marriage is a covenant that made the two into one flesh. And though this guy sends her out, divorces her, pretty much causing her to be in a situation to remarry, that remarriage and consummated with sexuality caused her to commit adultery. To be defiled by her second marriage. Now, let me just, I'm going to quote one commentator summing up this passage of Deuteronomy 24. The indecency mentioned in Deuteronomy 24.1 is not legitimate grounds for divorce. Moses is merely describing a divorce under such circumstances. He is in no way prescribing that such be done. The only actual commandment Moses issues regards the bill of divorcement which was necessary to protect the woman. Thus, if a man divorces his wife on grounds of indecency, in God's eyes they are still married. Consequently, if either mate remarries, and men and women in that society were quite likely to do so, sexual relations with the new spouse was adultery, since the marital bond of the first mate is not severed. This is where the word defilement of verse 4 comes from. She has been defiled and thus cannot remarry her first husband because her second marriage was adulterous. End quote. Here's Deuteronomy 24. It sits there for over a thousand years in Israel and in the Jewish community and then in the post-exotic time and Judaism is now being birthed into different sects. Jesus comes on the scene. There are two rabbinical schools of thought on this passage of the time. First was the rabbinic school of Shammai, which took the conservative view that says defilement and the reason for divorce is only on the grounds of some horrific marital offense. That's how they understood the word indecency. 
The other school of thought was the school of Hillel, which took a very liberal view. Defilement for them meant pretty much anything. She burns the food. She's got too many wrinkles now. These are not jokes. These things are written. Okay. She's got too many wrinkles. This just ain't going to work. This is a grounds for divorce. Here's Jesus in his ministry as we've been watching him for a while now. This is in the air of what is going on on this issue. So let's begin now and turn to the New Testament text. Let me just, if, if you don't know this, there are very few. In the New Testament, at least I think directly addressing the issue, there is our text in Luke chapter 16. There's a text in Mark chapter 10, and in Matthew, there's one in chapter 5 and one in chapter 19, and that's it in Jesus' ministry. Paul then addresses this issue directly in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. There we go. Let's start with our text. Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Here, Jesus, without exceptions, has a prohibition of divorce followed by remarriage. Quote, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So here Jesus seems to call all remarriage after divorce adultery which shows that he doesn't recognize the religious court or the secular court as dissolving the one flesh bond or union that he put together. Jesus here is directly taking a stand against the Jewish culture of the time which assumed all divorces came with the right before God to remarry. But look at your text again. Did you notice the really shocking thing about what Jesus says in verse 18? It's in the second half of the verse. And he, here comes some other man generically, some other man comes along who marries a woman divorced from her husband, commits adultery. Okay, let's stop for a second. The majority view in the evangelical church today holds that adultery on the part of the other spouse, there's the guilty one, here's the innocent party, that adultery on the part of the other spouse is a grounds for divorce before God and of remarriage. Now, when it comes to Luke, this passage here, and the one we will see in Mark, there, there are no exception clauses. Many fellow believers argue, well, he didn't need to put them in Luke, you know, except on the grounds of fornication. He didn't need to put those exception clauses about the grounds for divorce in Luke or in Mark because they were to assume everyone knows that adultery is a grounds for divorce. 
and remarries. Okay, let me just assume that view for a minute, that that is what, when we get there in the next sermon after Easter, let's assume that is what Jesus meant by His exception clause in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Your husband or your wife has committed divorce on you. You now are free to divorce them and to remarry. That just doesn't work with Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Because the situation here in the second part of the verse is that this wife did not divorce her husband. She was divorced by her husband. The man deserted her in this text, then marries another woman and thus commits adultery, according to Jesus, and left this wife divorced. If the traditional view of Matthew is correct, then this woman should be free to remarry. You following me here? But Jesus seems to say the opposite. He says the woman who was deserted by her husband, she's the innocent party here. He says essentially she was not free to remarry. Because if she does, that other man who remarries her, by so doing, Jesus says, he commits adultery. She was still considered, from God's viewpoint, to be married to her husband who divorced her. The grammar of this verse makes what I just said, I think, really clear. Let me just go through it slowly. Everyone who divorces... Okay, stop. This verb form here, this participle here, is an active voice. Okay, come on, go back to grammar school. The active voice means the subject of the verb. Is he's doing the verb. The verb here is divorcing. That's an action. He's doing the verb. This man is doing it. He's choosing. It's his action. Doing the verb. He divor- Anyone who divorces, active voice his wife, and marries another, is committing adultery. Then Jesus goes on. And he who marries a woman, not a woman who divorces her husband in this text, but a woman literally having been divorced by another. It's a passive voice, verb. Meaning the action of the verb of divorce is not her action. It's being done to her. According to Jesus, in this verse, God does not recognize her marriage as having been dissolved, even though her husband left her and committed adultery. see, One of the arguments, and I appreciate those who take this very seriously and come down with a different view, 
Because they don't just want to do it flippantly like a lot of evangelicalism does today. They want to know, what is going on here? What's the biblical grounds? And one of the arguments is, the reason divorce is a ground, excuse me, the reason adultery is a ground for divorce is because that act of adultery by one of those partners severed the one flesh union. Okay? But in Luke 16, verse 18, if you assume that, it just doesn't work. The man committed adultery. Jesus says if the woman who's even innocent remarries, it's an act of adultery because it didn't sever the union. The only thing I know to say at this point is Jesus has some very difficult to swallow demands. He's saying that a woman or a man who is forsaken by a spouse who then marries another, that innocent party is called to continue to display the sacredness of the marriage covenant by not marrying another. Now, this statement in a very different occasion in Jesus' ministry, is confirmed by him in Matthew chapter 5. So turn over there for a second. Matthew 5, 32. Jesus says, But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality... I'm just going to hold off on that. We're going to come back to that in our next sermon on this. But get the flow of what he's saying here. Everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. That's odd. The, the her is his wife he's divorcing. Makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, so here in the text, in the culture, Jesus assumes that in most situations here in the first century, a wife who is divorced by her husband will be drawn into a second marriage. And in spite of those cultural pressures, he calls the second marriage adultery. Quote, everyone who divorces his wife makes her, it's a Greek word, poie, he, he causes her to commit adultery. The assumption is here, by her second marriage. Seems to be a clear statement that remarriage is wrong not only for the person who is guilty in the process of divorce, but for the innocent person. Now, in reading different viewpoints on this, one, and this is, this is a smart scholar, and so I was a little stunned on, on, on this guy who holds that adultery 
is a grounds for divorce and remarriage. But this is the comment, and this is the only thing he said about what we just read in Matthew 5.32. Quote, This text deals with divorce initiated by the man, which it does. The rights of the woman are not discussed. I just threw up my hand. I didn't get up. What are you talking about? He just made, he made a direct comment of what happened to the innocent party in, in the divorce. That this guy's sin puts her in a position now to commit adultery in a second marriage. It just seems to be very clear. Jesus' opposition to remarriage after divorce seems to be grounded on the unbreakableness of the marriage bond by anything but death. Now, I want you to turn to Mark. We'll go to Mark chapter 10. And let's listen in on a more in-depth and a longer dialogue here that Jesus has with the Pharisees on this subject and where Jesus comes to the same conclusion that we have just seen in Luke and in Matthew. Chapter 2, Mark 10. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test Jesus, asked Him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? At least they asked the question. Many people today don't even know there is a question. But of course their question wasn't sincere. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to trap him as they've been doing now for a while in Jesus' ministry. But Jesus knew exactly how these guys defended their divorces and their remarriage. And so he leads them to their main passage, Deuteronomy 24, on purpose, that they would use to justify their thinking on this. In verse 3, Jesus says, What did Moses command you? He knows exactly what they're going to do. He knows they're going to go to Deuteronomy 24 that we have already seen and we saw was just a passage that described that divorce is essentially inevitable in sinful humanity and that Moses wasn't giving legislation how to do all this. He was given a structure that protected a woman and there was an allowance for it. So Jesus in turn is trapping the Pharisees in order to point out their bogus interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 and their neglect of what else Moses says in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 about the ultimate and real and original meaning of marriage. So they answer. What does Moses say, Jesus says? Verse 4. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Their answer is true. Moses allowed that in Deuteronomy 24. Now here's the question. 
How will Jesus respond to that answer? Verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. Okay. Jesus just implied that there are laws in the Old Testament that are not God's will for all time. But they're instructions on how to manage sin. They're instructions on how to manage people who aren't born again. How to manage unregenerate, hard hearts of people. His people. At a particular time. See, don't, don't be surprised. This, this happens a lot. Take polygamy. More than one wife, which you see a lot of that in the Old Testament. There's nowhere in the Old Testament where God is sanctioning polygamy after what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 with Adam and Eve and what the marriage covenant, not at all. But we do see regulations given in Moses on how to manage it and how to protect women in that what's going on in the culture. Okay? You see that somewhat with slavery, which was just in every culture throughout humanity until very recently. There are regulations on protecting slaves. But it's not a sanction for human slavery. Okay. Jesus says here, the permission that God gave you through Moses to write a certificate of divorce was not a reflection of God's ideal for people. He says it was a reflection of the hardness of sinful hearts. And now what he says? Because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. Okay, follow now what he's doing with the Pharisee. Then Jesus takes the Pharisees back to God's purpose in creation for marriage by quoting Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and then he quotes Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 and he does it in order to show them and to show us the way marriage is intended start with verse 6 well, let, let's just flow it from verse 5 because of your hardness of heart he wrote you this commandment in Deuteronomy 24. But, from the beginning of creation, and now he quotes Genesis 1. God made them male and female. And now he quotes Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that's the end of Jesus' quotation of Scriptures. Question is now, what is Jesus going to do with what He just quoted? See, what, what we see so far, it is obvious Jesus recognizes a tension between Deuteronomy 24, the permission 
of divorce, that he sees a tension between Deuteronomy 24 and Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So follow his flow of thought so far. Moses gave you this allowance because of the sinful conditions of your hearts. But from the beginning, you see it? For Jesus, that but means God's will about divorce in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is not the same as His will of allowance in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So here's the question now. That's what He's done at this point. Which way is Jesus going to go? He's ushering in the kingdom of God, the new era. This is our context of Luke, remember? He's ushering in the new era of the kingdom of God since His first coming. Which way will King Jesus go on this subject for His people? Will He say to His disciples, okay, now I know that you are still sinful, which is true. I know that you still have to wrestle with hard hearts, which is true. And because you have to wrestle with the hardness of your heart, and as it would grow against your wife, your stiff-necked rebellion and unrepentance, therefore, Deuteronomy 24 is still valid for you. Go ahead and divorce her. Or divorce him. Is he going to go that way? Or is he going to say something like, I have come to fulfill Ezekiel and Jeremiah. A new heart I will put within you. I'll take out the heart of hardness, that is, of stone, and I'll put within you a heart of flesh. And all those who are called by my name, who are new creations in Christ, will placard to the world the real meaning of holy matrimony. Is he going to go that way? But just read on, because he answers which way he's going to go in the text. In the middle of verse 8, he's just finished his two quotations from Genesis. And then he says, so. That means, therefore. That means I, King Jesus, am drawing a conclusion from Genesis. So, therefore, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Therefore, conclusion, there is a profound union that happens in marriage. Two become one. It is as profound as the union between Jesus and the church. And secondly, he said, God does this. Beyond the state or the county, beyond a pastor pronouncing you as husband and wife, beyond witnesses signing the paperwork. God joined them together according to Jesus. Which leads him to say, let not man 
separate. Therefore, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. By man, he doesn't mean a, a man as opposed to a woman. It's not that word, anir. It's the word anthropos. He, do, he means do not let humanity separate what God has joined together. Okay. That's it with Jesus' dialogue with the Pharisees. It's over. The conversation ends at that point. They came to ask Jesus, Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife? Jesus answered them, no. That's, that's a summary of what he just said. He answered them. The answer is no. What therefore God has joined together, answer, let not man separate. End of conversation. In other words, he has clearly just said no. It's not lawful. It contradicts God's ultimate meaning of marriage laid out in Genesis. Jesus has said to them, in Deuteronomy 24, it was allowed. It was allowed because of the sinfulness, the hard-heartedness of my people. But he goes on to say, essentially, I am calling my followers to a higher calling, a higher standard than the compromise of Moses in Deuteronomy. Can you handle that? I just wonder, if you've been here as we've been working our way through Luke, remember, that is the context of Luke 16. When Jesus brought in his pronouncement on divorce and remarriage. The context was Moses, that's what he means by the law, the law and the prophets. They were until John the Baptist. Something new is happening now. Since then, since the kingdom of God is being preached in His coming, He is King Jesus. The text is about authority. And that's when He plunges into the statement on divorce and remarriage. And we saw Jesus made it. No, I have not come to wipe out the law. Nothing will be wiped out. He came to fulfill it. In Jesus' coming, He not only came to fulfill with His life, His death, and His resurrection, the types and the shadows that are pictured in the law of Moses and in the prophets. Oh, He fulfilled it all. But with His death and His resurrection, He purchased a people. He purchased new life. He purchased it so that these people would come alive to God's Word. Genesis 1 and 2. You remember how, that's how Jesus talked, didn't it? You heard it said in Moses, thou shalt not murder. Don't just think because you have lived your life without actually committing an act of murder that somehow you're holy before God. He says, we're going to go to the heart of the law. I say to you, if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, you have already committed murder in your heart. Jesus goes to the heart. He's come purchase people, to bring them to life, to sanctify them in the midst of pain and struggle and continuing hard-heartedness, but 
If they're real, they're believers, they're, there's these glimpses of brokenness, repentance, and change. He's come to reveal in practice the heart of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 of marriage. Christian marriage is mainly, as we saw last week, to tell the truth about Christ and His faithfulness to the church and about the church's love and submission to Christ. Okay, that, that was a long parenthesis. Back to it. Jesus says no. Conversation's over with the Pharisees. Now look what happens in verse 10. I'm, 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 just, trying to, I'm just trying to picture. Okay, here's his disciples. This tension between Jesus and the religious leadership and the Pharisaic community has been growing. And they know that. Okay, man, Jesus used hyperbole there in order to really shut them down? Because this was a mass meeting, okay? This is the context. It's a mass meeting. Jesus, they've watched this entire thing. They've watched Jesus' hard stance on this very sensitive human institution. And maybe they're thinking, okay, maybe he's just trying to deal with his enemies. Jesus, tell us the real, real thing. I mean, you can't be serious, can you? About what you just said? Okay, that's my interpretation. This is, this is how it's said. Verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. Oh, the difference between being a historian and writing a line or letting a screenplay writer take this and make a movie out of it. Because I think it went more kind of like I just did. We got more questions then. They're stunned. They're shocked. This is very different from their culture as it is our culture today. Jesus, come on, tell us privately. Okay, just us now. And he's taught, he's, this is what he says. And Jesus said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Okay. That's the gist that Luke says of what happened. These guys are stunned. They're just, they are internally freaking out. Are you serious? I got solid ground for that comment. Luke does not tell us that. But in Matthew's parallel account, he does tell us that. This is how Matthew says it. Same thing. The Pharisees left. Now they're in a house. Come on, tell us for sure. What are you really saying? And Jesus just says the same thing. And then Matthew adds this in verse 10 of Matthew 19. The disciples said to him, 
If such is the case with a man, with his wife, it is better not to marry. They can't believe it. They're stunned. They are stunned at Jesus' radical position. Just as we are today. Wow, they say. If that's true, marriage is too big of a risk. You can't predict the future. What if 12 years down the line we find out she's bipolar? Jesus, is it that permanent? Well, if that's the case, then it's probably better not even to take the risk and get married. That's a risk. If God gives you longer life, you may have five decades in front of you. And the prospect of, wait a minute, wait, that permanent, Jesus? What if I fall out of love with her 30 years from now? It's risky. What if she gains too much weight? What if age doesn't do her well and she sags? What if my sinfulness against my husband or against my wife says, I'm going to protect her from me instead of repent and be changed by Jesus? Wouldn't it be better to divorce then, Jesus? What if my wife, three years down the road, or 34, or my husband deserts me. What if midlife crisis just whacked them out? Jesus, if such is the case of what you're saying with a man and his wife, then it's probably better not to marry. Really, Jesus? I may be stuck. And even having been divorced by them, stuck to live single till the resurrection. That seems to be what the disciples are hearing. They're stunned. And in Matthew 19, it's not over yet, because of their response, well then Jesus, sounds to me it's probably better not even to marry and take this risk. And Jesus, he has some counsel for them. And this is the counsel in Matthew 19, 11 to 12. But Jesus responded to them, Not everyone can receive the same. No, duh. But only to whom it is given. And he gives this argument. You see, guys, there are eunuchs. Okay. Eunuch technically means the castration of a male. It just did so, so especially it can work in a harem of a guy, so he doesn't have these sexual urges. That's what the word means. Okay. But he's not going to mean that all three times here, clearly in the context. He's going to mean a choice concerning one's sexual acting out, living celibate. So because this is the context. They're stunned. You can't mean this. Life doesn't go the way you want. You're saying, I'm stuck here being single. 
Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. They have that gift. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. Okay. We're going to come back the week after Easter. Next week. We won't be dealing with this topic on Easter. And we'll deal with the remaining text. This morning, let me close with just a few words to those of you who are married or who may ever get married in the future. In Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, the word of the Lord says, it's the last book of the Old Testament, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, that guy covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Marriage is a covenant with your wife, with your husband. It is a covenant under God. And He does the sealing of that union. He was a witness. Whether you were an unbeliever or a believer at the time, He was a Witness of it. Verse 14, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. I, Joe, take you, Sonia, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to love and to hold in richer and in poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. That's the essence of marriage. It is covenant. Not feelings. Not the experience of marital bliss. It is about 
covenant. And God was not a passive bystander in those vows. He united the two into one flesh. Feelings in marriage may have wonderful high points. And I like them. I covet them. And they will have painful, low points. Seasons of life come and they go. Disappointments and squabbles and pain are inevitable. Unless your marriage only lasts about a week and you die. But the covenant of marriage is a pointer to the radical faithfulness of Jesus to the church. Fellowship may be broken at times. It's true with God. God may break fellowship. He may even send His bride into exile. There may be separation. There may be anger. There may be tears. But God will not divorce the elect. This is the way it is put in Isaiah chapter 54 as I'm closing here. Isaiah 54 verses 5 to 8. Remember, God had... God... I'm going to... He was always the innocent party. He didn't do any sinning, unlike every one of our marriages. It is two sinners. God's the innocent party here, and He had a rebellious, sinful wife. And at times He separated. But hear the word of the Lord. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, He is called. For the Lord, Yahweh, has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you in overflowing anger. For a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God will never nullify His marriage to the elect. Jesus will never forsake the bride, the church, as rebellious and as sinful as we are. And that is the meaning of marriage. So, come on up, sir. Will you who are married, or you who one day will find yourselves married, will you pray against selfish 
self-centered, romantic visions of marriage and embrace the deeper, lay your life down for your spouse, Christ-exalting covenant vision of marriage. Let's be a people who pray and live and while we fight from our behalf and together in marriages to make them better and sweet, but stand upon the foundation of covenant before God as a parable of Christ to the church and the church to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we beg of you to work the depth of the gospel of Jesus into the hearts of husbands and of wives, to work it so deeply by your Spirit that the fruit of the Spirit of love, of husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her instead of taking his own selfish way, would you make that real in us husbands more? And would you make the love and the respect and the adoration for husbands real in wives? And for all of us single or married, divorced or remarried, cause us to honor marriage for what it really means to shine as a light in the darkness of our culture today to the glory of the name of Jesus Christ.